I heard this many times when I was growing up, that there are only two things in this life that you can be sure of, death and taxes. One day you're going to die, and whether you like it or not, you're going to have to pay taxes. It's not a pleasant thing to think about, but it's true. And it's a truth that we have to learn to deal with. But I think there are other things that should be added to that list, other things that we need to prepare ourselves for, because sooner or later it's going to happen. Think about what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, when it tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens. Doesn't that imply that sooner or later life is going to give us more than what we can handle? Doesn't that imply that sooner or later we're going to find ourselves in a set of circumstances that will be so overwhelming that if somebody's not standing nearby to hold us and, and support us, that we're going to fall, we're going to crash? The truth that the Bible is teaching there in Galatians chapter 6, that we should bear one another's burdens, doesn't that imply that some days the grief, the sorrow, the trouble that's going to be dumped on our shoulders is going to be, be more, it's so, so challenging that we're not going to be able to handle that. It's going to be so heavy, so burdensome, we're not going to be able to handle that challenge by ourselves. And we're going to need other people to come alongside and help share the load. The Bible says it's a fact of life. One day it's sure to happen. This world will give you more than what you can handle. And when that happens, will you be prepared? Will you have a church? Will you have a family of brothers and sisters in Christ to, that you can lean on and, and help share the load? Here's something else that you can be sure of. Life is not always going to turn out the way you planned. Isn't that what the book of Job talked about when it said people were born for trouble, just as surely as the sparks fly up from a fire? You know, we're never surprised when we see the sparks fly up from a campfire because that's what they do. Well, the Bible says we should not be shocked when trouble comes our way because that's the kind of world we're living in. No matter how carefully you organize your day, there's still going to be flat tires and traffic jams. There's still going to be a crash in the stock market or a layoff at the plant. No matter how carefully you prepare, your children are still going to get the flu and that washing machine is eventually going to break down. And don't be surprised when these bad things happen at the most inconvenient times. Because again, that's the kind of world, the kind of broken down world we are living in now. A world where trouble is bound to happen. And life is not always going to turn out the way we plan. But here's our hope. Here's the one other thing that the Bible says you can always be sure of. God's providence. Now that's an old word and we don't hear it much anymore. But it's an important word providence. It means that God is still active, very active and very involved in this world that he made. You see, God is not this fine elderly gentleman who's standing at the back of the school auditorium with a big smile on his face as he quietly watches his grandchildren up there on the stage performing in the school play. You know, just st silently standing in the back and just watching, just observing. That's not providence. Providence means he's up on the stage. He's a part of the play, too. He's in every one of these scenes. And he's there to make sure that should one of the children forget their lines or should something go wrong with one of the props, he's going to make sure that in the end, this story is going to turn out the way it is supposed to. Providence means that God is engaged, that he is fully aware of everything that's going on in our world right now. And he is actively directing the course of our history. And it is that constant activity that gives us hope whenever trouble comes our way. Now, I think we see an example of that in the scripture that we're going to study today. Acts chapter 8. Look at this with me. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. 
It says, on that day. What day? Well, the same day that we just read about in Acts chapter 7, the day when Stephen was killed. Can you imagine how shocking this must have been to everyone in this church? I mean, Stephen was one of a kind, godly to the core, a man full of grace and truth. Thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem had been impacted by his life and ministry. But now, all of a sudden, without any warning, he's arrested, and then he's executed, murdered in a brutal way. The enemies of the church have now taken the gloves off, and what they've done to Stephen, they intend to do to others, too. So now, a very bad day gets even worse. On that day, the day when Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the entire church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. See, the honeymoon's over. The nightmare begins. Nothing in this church is ever going to be the same again. They have just lost one of their key leaders, Stephen, a man that the Bible describes here in Acts chapter 6 as a man who was performing all kinds of signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. But now he's gone. And how, how are we going to get along without him being here? I mean, who's going to step in to fill the void? So they've lost one of their key leaders, and they've also lost the sense of safety and security. Because now everybody in the church is under attack. Notice what it says in verse 3. It says, But Saul, one of the enemies of this church, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Can you imagine what it was like for those little boys and girls sitting in their homes and all of a sudden these angry men come barging in and grab their mom, grab their dad, and drag them off to prison? And those little boys and girls don't know if they're ever going to see their parents again. Can you imagine how scared they must have been? So they've lost one of their key leaders, and they've lost the sense of safety and security, and they've also lost the sense of community. No longer are they going to be one big happy family. No longer are they going to be one big church in Jerusalem. Now they're going to be scattered in a million different directions. And as a result, they're no longer going to have a close contact with the 12 apostles. The 12 men that Jesus appointed to be the very foundation of this church. The 12 men who could always answer their questions and solve their problems. Now that resource is gone. So... Suddenly, this church finds itself in a very grim and dangerous situation. And in the shock of all these bad things happening, they must have been in a daze. They must have been wondering, what's going on? Where's God? Why is he not putting a stop to this? Why is he not stepping in and doing something about this? I mean, is he even aware of what's going on? Has God forgotten us? No. Come back to verse 1. There's a word in this verse that shows us how God is at work in this horrible situation. Verse 1 says, And a great persecution broke out against the entire church. And as a result, the believers were scattered. Now there's the phrase, they were scattered. Notice that it doesn't say that they scattered themselves as though they were the ones taking the initiative. No, it says they were scattered, meaning that someone else is working behind the scenes. And that someone else is God. God is using the enemy, their anger, their attacks, to carry out his own plan. And how is he doing this? Well, look at the word scatter. It's an interesting word. When Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts, there's all kinds of words that he could have used to describe the scenes, words that might have talked about the, the chaos that normally would happen whenever a big crowd like this was suddenly dispersed. You know, somebody stands up in a crowded movie theater and screams, fire! And suddenly there's this mass hysteria as the crowd disperses in all different directions, everybody running as fast as they can, hoping to find an exit. That's not the kind of word that is used here. No, Luke uses a word that talks about a farmer 
and how he intentionally and strategically plants seeds in the ground. You see, to the general public, as they see what is happening, it looks like the church has fallen apart. They're scattered to the four winds. Now all the Christians have become a bunch of refugees, forced to leave their homes there in Jerusalem, and now they're scrambling to find another place to live. It all looks so chaotic. But that's not what is really happening here. You see, because of the specific word that the Bible uses here, the, the, this word to scatter, the Bible is telling us that it's God who's at work. He is guiding every one of these young Christians, they and their families, as they're being dispersed from their homes in Jerusalem. God is making sure that each one of them winds up in a specific place, the place where he intends for them to be. And an example of that is the rest of Acts chapter 8. You look at this man named Philip, and you watch how God works through his life, and you can know that what God's doing for Philip, he's doing for every one of these believers. You see, these Christians are not refugees. They're missionaries. They're not being scattered. They're being sent. They are God's seed, and God is now in the process of planting them in specific places outside of Jerusalem so other people can learn about Jesus too. God is using this persecution to grow his church. So it, here in the midst of this horrible suffering, we see the hand of providence. The Lord is at work. Now, pause for a moment and think about this. At this very moment, when all these bad things are happening, it would not be easy to see God's providence. At this particular moment, for these first century disciples, it wouldn't have been easy to understand, okay, what is God up to right now? Notice what it says here in verse 2. When Stephen dies, it said, And godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. Now that was a risky move on the part of these godly men. You see, Stephen has been condemned as a criminal and condemned by the highest court in the land, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had publicly declared Stephen to be a blasphemer and a lawbreaker. And for such an individual, there was to be no burial. That was part of the shame associated with a crime. He doesn't deserve this. So for these Christians to come together and hold a funeral like this, you know there's going to be repercussions, but they do it anyway. Because these godly men want all the citizens of Jerusalem to know that they don't agree with the court. Stephen was no criminal. He was a noble man. He was an honorable man. He deserved better than this. And so they mourn in a public way for him so everybody in this town can know how deeply Stephen was loved. But as the Christians mourn, as they're holding this funeral, they've got to be wondering in their minds, God, why? Why Stephen? And why now? I mean, here was a young man who had such promise. Here was a young man who had so much talent. Here was a young man who was doing so much good. His ministry for Jesus was making an enormous impact upon so many lives. So God, why let Stephen be taken? And, and why now? And it, why let Stephen be taken? And we're still here? See, all these individuals here in verse 2, all these individuals who are crying at this funeral, they had to be thinking to themselves, why is Stephen gone? And why are we still here? In 1912, there was a preacher over in the city of London who wondered the same thing. His name was J. Stuart Holden. He and his wife had purchased two tickets for a trip to America. They'd been saving up for this their entire lives. It was a dream come true, and they were so excited. And what added to the excitement was the fact that they were going to be taking this cruise to America aboard the finest ship that had ever been built, the Titanic. I mean, wow, what an adventure this was going to be, and they could hardly wait. 
But a month before they were scheduled to leave, Mrs. Holden became sick, very ill, so ill they had to cancel the trip. And they were both devastated. Well, a month later, when the Titanic tragically sank in the waters of the North Atlantic, Jay, Holden, Jay Stewart Holden and his wife saw the hand of providence, how God had used her illness to save their lives. So Mr. Holden took those two unused tickets and he put them in a picture frame. And underneath the tickets, he typed these words, a testimony to the love of God. Now, whenever anybody stopped by the house to visit, Mr. Holden would show them the tickets and he would tell them the story how God, in his kindness, had spared their lives. Well, one day, a man from Scotland stopped by for a visit and he saw the tickets and he heard the story and he just kind of shook his head. He said, Mr. Holden, that's a very moving story, but I think you've got it wrong. And Jay Stewart Holden was curious, wrong? How so? I mean, don't you believe those two unused tickets are marvelous testimony to the love of God? And the man from Scotland nodded his head. He said, yeah, in one sense, I can see that. But you answer me this, Mr. Holden. You see, I had a friend, a dear friend, who did sail on the Titanic. He was a preacher from the city of Glasgow. His name was Mr. Harper, and he was on his way to America to hold a revival, and yet he died in the water. So, Mr. Holden, are you telling me with those two unused tickets that this is a testimony of the love of God, meaning that God loved you and God loved your wife more than he loved Mr. Harper? And J. Stewart Holden didn't know what to say. I mean, for days he wrestled with this until finally he decided to put a different inscription on that picture. Now, underneath those two unused tickets, the words read, a testimony to the sovereignty of God. This is Mr. Holden's way of saying that God is in charge, and I trust that he has a plan for this world. But will I always understand how he carries out that plan? No. You see, here were two men, here were two wonderful preachers, Mr. Harper, Mr. Holden, one from Scotland, the other from England. And God loved both men exactly the same. But in the mystery of his will, God allowed one of the men to be quickly and unexpectedly called up to heaven, while he allowed the other man to stick around in this world a little bit longer. So why? Why was one taken and the other left? Well, only God knows. But here's what J. Stuart Holden learned from that experience. The fact that I'm still here means I must be here for a reason. The fact that I'm still here must mean that God wants me to be here. So while I'm here, I'm gonna live in a way that honors him. I think that's the lesson these early Christians were learning from this experience here in Acts chapter 8. When Stephen died, why was he taken? Why are we still left? Well, only God knows. But the fact that we're still here must mean we're here for a reason. The fact that we're still here must mean that God wants us to be here. So while we're here, we're going to live a life that honors him. And with that mindset, notice what they did. Verse 4. It says, and those who were scattered, as they were being scattered, they went everywhere, preaching the word. Now that word preach, is, it means more than just the formal act of preaching. It means everywhere they went, they continued to talk about Jesus. Have you ever noticed when you read about the life of Jesus, how he always kept things simple? How he's all the time encouraging people, don't worry about the future, just focus on today. For example, think of some of the instructions that Jesus gave to the people that he was helping, to the leper, to the man that he just healed of leprosy. He said, now go and show yourself to the priests. 
Here's the next step. Here's the next thing you need to do. Go show yourself to the priest. To the paralyzed man, the one lying on the mat, the one that had just been forgiven of all his sins, Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat and go home. Here's the next step. Here's the next thing you need to do. Just get up, pick up your mat and go home. To Jairus and his wife, this couple where Jesus has just taken their 12-year-old girl and brought her back to life again. And yet, what does Jesus say? Here's what you need to do next. Why don't you fix her some lunch? Get that, nothing big, nothing impressive, not, you know, here's her a life plan for the next five years of her life. No, Jesus said, let's just focus on today, on right now. Here's the next thing you need to do. Fix her some lunch. Here's the next right thing to do. Wouldn't that be good advice for us? Instead of worrying, okay, what kind of major changes do I need to make in my life so I can better serve God? Wouldn't it be better if we narrowed the frame? Wouldn't it be better if we just simplified? Wouldn't it be better if we asked, what do I need to do this week to better serve God? That was the attitude of these early Christians. And because they believed in the providence of God, they knew that as we focus on today, as we focus on doing the next right thing, God is going to handle all the rest. Let's trust him to do the same for us. Let's pray. God, this is still your world, and we are still your people, and we are confident that you will take care of us. God, we believe in you, that you are all-knowing and all-powerful, so we believe that you will provide. We believe that you will protect, and we trust you for these blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.